Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30 this morning is where we're going to be. Two weeks in a row we've been in the book of Isaiah. Um, no, no series starting there, uh, but just uh, ironically, two weeks in a row I've come across passages that I think are applicable for where we are. And so we were in Isaiah 40 last week, Isaiah chapter 30 uh, today. How many of you like stories? You like you know, those who, who like stories? I, I enjoy a good story from time to time. While you're turning, let me just share a little story with you about a fellow named Fictitious Sam. Fictitious Sam, when he was born uh, years ago, was born really in, in, into humility to some degree. His parents didn't have a whole lot. Even his arrival into this world was dramatic. I mean, there were a lot of things surrounding his birth that really his life could have gone either direction. He could have either survived or he could have, or, or could have, could have uh, never even made it. Uh, from those earliest days. But fictitious Sam made his entrance into this world, born into humility. He began to, uh, to grow and to kind of mature, and he built some friendships, and he was able to build, uh, uh, really to kind of build a name for himself. He became well-known in his neighborhood as he grew up. He was successful in school, did well on the athletic field. He uh, uh, did well in the classroom. So well, in fact, that he was able to go on and to extend his education. Not anyone in his family had ever been able to do that. And yet, fictitious Sam was able to do that. He went off to college, got his degree, even stayed a little bit longer, got an advanced degree as well in finance. And when he graduated, he took a great job. In fact, his first job that he ever took was probably better than some people's careers over the course of their lives. He was, he was blessed. He knew a lot of people. He did a lot of good. He succeeded in just about everything that he touched. But there was one component to his life that wasn't quite where it needed to be. It was that moral side of his life. It started really early on when he started just changing some figures on his tax returns. He, he figured, you know, there were some other people that were getting a leg up on him, and everybody did it so he could do it himself. So he used the eraser a few too many times on those returns and, and turned in some things that weren't exactly accurate. Yeah, everybody was doing it, but for him, he, he thought he would just follow suit. So he fudged on his returns a little bit, made a little bit of an increase from there. It became a little bit more involved and before long, what started as just a, just a simple choice to, to step outside the boundaries was full-blown fraud, up to the point to where he was finally found and brought to trial and convicted and sentenced. You know, I call that a story because I made that whole thing up. But fictitious Sam is a reflection, isn't he, to some degree, of not only of the, some of the lives represented here this morning, but he's also a representation, to some degree, of this nation in which we live. You know, for us, we were born into humility. It took a war for us to be a nation, didn't it? It took a war. It took the loss of life for us to be solidified in very humble means. I mean, life was, early on, a little over 200 years ago, it was brand new for those that settled this particular place that we call the United States of America today. And there were some times where they had to kind of get their feet under them, and they began to, as they grew, to mature. There were principles that this country was found on that were the bedrock principles of this nation, principles built on, on uh, the foundation of God's Word. And as this nation grew and began to experience prosperity and, and began to experience accomplishment, began to really stand alone independently of any need of any other country, of any other assistance, there was a point in our history where ultimately we began to step outside as a nation the boundaries that had once made us strong. You know, it's been said that, when the, that the reason America is great is because America is good. 
And where America ceases to be good, she will then cease to become great. And I don't know where the place was. I don't know where the point was on the history timeline where it took place. But there was a point where this country, as a whole, collectively, not down to a man, but collectively stepped outside the parameters that we read of in the truth of God's Word. And we began to go our own independent way, apart from God. And it may have started small. It may have started with just a simple vote to bring one person into office, one particular act into being. It may have been the vote, perhaps many would say, to kick God out of the public school system. Who knows? But it may was more than likely it was just one simple choice followed by another simple choice, seemingly innocent in and of themselves. But now collectively, as we look back, we see that we as a country have, have really gravitated so far away from where we once were, so far away from where God had once placed us and blessed us. To the point to where even though we are a blessed nation, there's no other nation on the face of this earth that is blessed in the same way as this country is. I believe the time has come where we can also say, however, that we no longer can be identified as a Christian nation. Now, I remember hearing people, uh, a number, I'd say probably about a year and a half ago was when it first started, maybe two years. There would be the, those that would make the comment, in the public arena that America is now a post-Christian nation. And I would see online and in the blogosphere, and you'd hear Christian commentators talk about the uproar of how we are not a post-Christian nation, we are a Christian nation. But, you know, I have to wonder, how can we be identified as a Christian nation? When some of the things that are passed get passed, some of the things that we embrace, we embrace. And even though the statistics say that 40% of Americans are involved actively in a local church, on my drive to church on a Sunday basis... Year after year after year, hey, if 40 pe- 40% of this community left, the, left their houses at the same time, we'd have a logjam like we've never seen. People just don't go to church the way we say they do. People don't walk with God the way we say we do. In fact, to the point to where we, as a nation, are coming to a place that we're going to see resembled here in a statement that was made 2,700 years ago by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 30. Let me give you a little bit of a context of what we're going to look at here in Isaiah chapter 30. And before we read it, I want to hold it up against the story that I told at the very beginning. If you had been one who knew fictitious Sam personally, and you began to hear the stories that he was erasing and changing some of those returns, and you knew as a person who honors God that the decisions he was making would one day come back to haunt him, would you as a friend not speak into his life that which was true? I think you would. If you were to see fictitious Sam beginning to gravitate away from what once had made him strong and honorable, doing things that you knew were wrong, what would you in your mind understand that it would take to bring him back? It would be a response of obedience to the truth of God's word, correct? And for us as a nation, it's no different. Isaiah was God's prophet. He prophesied 750 years before Jesus would walk this earth. As a prophet, Isaiah knew his job and he knew his call and he knew his role. He was put in place by God, by no other person. He's put in place by God to speak the truth of God into a godless culture. Now, Isaiah was a prophet to the people of Judah. You, know, you think, well, who are the people of Judah? I've heard of the people of, of Israel, but who are Judah? Well, at this point in history, 750 years before Christ, the nation of Israel was divided. You had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. They were still God's people, but they were a divided kingdom. Israel had her kings, and uh, Judah had her kings. 
And so here, Isaiah steps into this world. He steps in as a prophet called by God, surrounded by royalty. It was not uncommon for Isaiah to find himself shoulder to shoulder with the rulers of the nation of Judah. And Isaiah, in that culture, in the midst of a people who had wandered from God, they were becoming apostate, they were abandoning God, is called to speak the truth of God's word into their lives. You can imagine they didn't want to hear anything Isaiah had to say, and, and they didn't. Isaiah consistently would speak the truth of God's word. He was God's mouthpiece, God's prophet. And as he would speak God's truth, he would call sin for what it was in their lives. And yet he would also temper and balance those words with a call back to God. And the hope that would be there if they would only choose to return. And so Isaiah here in chapter 30, he is speaking in in as bold a language as, as, as we can imagine. The truth that God's people, the people of Judah, were being called back to a close walk with God. They had abandoned him, they had begun chasing other things, and he was calling them home. It will be eerily similar to the circumstances which we we see happening in our own country even today, even though this book was written 2,700 years ago. And so pick up with me, Isaiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. He says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Let me stop right there for just a moment. There is a misconception whenever it comes to things political in nature. We as a country obviously find ourselves in the midst of political season. You can't drive out of your neighborhood without seeing a sign in someone's yard. You can't turn on the TV without seeing some advertisement. We are a political nation. And and we as as Christians have to understand that the scriptures were written in the midst of a political climate. There are two extremes whenever you look at the issue of politics and and Christianity and our faith. There are those that say, well, Christianity has no place in the political arena. And so they bury their head in the sand. They don't speak uh, into any of the circumstances that affect our culture. They don't pray for our nation. They don't pray for our leaders. They they don't uh, cast votes. They they don't do any of that. They say, well, no, Christianity is separate, removed in a different compartment from, from all things spiritual. That's one extreme, and it's not good. And then there's the other extreme of those as Christians who come to the other end of the spectrum, and they, they almost come to the point to where they feel like the kingdom of God is going to be ushered in on the back of a donkey or, a, you know, or, a, uh, or an elephant. You know, it's almost as though they're waiting for God's kingdom to come on the back of Air Force One, you know, and that is not healthy. There are those who feel as though, listen, whoever is, is in control, whoever is, is uh, leading our nation, that's going to have direct ramifications on what God can do in this world. Listen, God is not losing an ounce of sleep over who gets put into office he is totally in control. Proverbs 21.1 says that as, uh, uh, as water in the, the, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of God, he turns it wherever he wishes. You know, I remember as a kid, you know, there was a, a ditch. We called it a stream, but it was a ditch near our house. And uh, I guess for parents, streams make it sound like property values go up. But it was just a ditch near, near our house. And we could go out there when the rain would come. And it'd rain a couple of inches in a short amount of time. And you could, you could play out in that water and you could build little, you know, little, uh, make little boats out of magnolia leaves. You ever do that? And uh, maybe I was goofy. I needed more friends. But you'd go out there and in that, you could just, you could carve out a little stream and you could block up this and that water would go wherever you wanted it to go. God says, again, in Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is just like that. As easy it is for your five-year-old to make streams wherever he wants, to just dig a little trench and there the water goes. That's how much control God has over the most powerful of rulers in this country and in this world they're like channels of water god 
has a desire for his people. He has a desire for this nation as he does every nation. He has a desire for, for, uh, for this world. And yet we have to remember that we can't go to the extreme of compartmentalizing our faith apart from the political climate of our day. But we also can't go to the extreme to where we place all of our hope on what gets passed and who's in office. Does that make sense? You know, the Bible is a book that was written in the midst of a political climate. And much of what you read of happened because of political decisions that were made. You think of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, right? You got the crossing of the Red Sea. You know why the, the, the people of Israel had to cross the Red Sea to find freedom and to find release and to find rescue? was because of a political choice of Pharaoh to hold them in slavery. When Jesus would come along and he would be born of the Virgin Mary and he would be placed in a manger and he would begin to grow up through his childhood, what did Herod decide to do? He decided to place the edict in, 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 uh, in order to where all children two years old and younger would ultimately be, uh, all male children two years old and younger would ultimately be, uh, be eliminated. Why? It was a political decision of the political leader in that day that affected Jesus' own family. And so the Bible itself is written in the midst of a political climate. However, we cannot go so far as to say that, it, that, that its message is a political message. No, it is a spiritual message that affects every area of life. There was an issue taking place here in Isaiah 30. The first two verses capture it. Here's what, I, here's what the people of Judah face. They face a decision. They could either... Seek to stand alone and perhaps suffer, or they could strike an alliance with the nation of Egypt. When you read there in chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, it's talking about the sin they had committed of making an alliance with the nation of Egypt without seeking refuge in the Lord. And that was a problem that God would have all along for his people. You see, early in the Old Testament, God's people wanted a king. Give us a king. We want a king. The other nations have a king. They have a king that leads them into battle. They have a king that makes their decisions. They have a king that leads them. And so God's people, early in the Old Testament, would say, we want a king. Give us a king. God didn't want them to have a king. God told them they didn't need a king. They had him. He was enough for them. No, we want a king. What was the first king he gave? King Saul. How long did it take for things to head south? Not long at all. God allowed his people, though they didn't need one, though he didn't want them to have one, in their free will, God allowed them a king. And ever since that day, it has been customary for the people of God to seek strength, to seek blessing, to seek allegiance of all things other than God. And so here in Isaiah 30, his people are striking an alliance with the nation of Egypt. God says in the first two verses, you don't need to do that. This is a great sin. You're seeking something in another alliance that you should be finding in me. Verse 3. It says, therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the, shelter in, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt will be your humiliation. And so that lays the picture for us. You have the people of God, the people of Judah, who are seeking after uh, shelter, they're seeking comfort, they're seeking safety in another land rather than in the person of God himself. God sends his prophet Isaiah. He prophesies to them, he warns them, he has very strong language to share to them, and yet the people would have absolutely nothing of it. So let's jump down to verse 3, or I'm sorry, into verse 9. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9. It says, for this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord 
who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. I know of no other passage in the Old Testament that, is, that hits the core of where we are as a nation right now than that particular passage, and it's 2,700 years old. He says to the people here through Isaiah, he, he, he nails what their sin is, that they have taken the prophets of God. The prophets were God's mouthpiece in a godless culture to lead his people back to himself. They said, we want the prophets to just shut up. We don't want to hear anything they have to say. We want them to be removed from us. We don't want them anywhere near us. We don't want to hear what they have to say in regards to truth. In fact, look again at verse 10. Say to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. In other words, just tell us what we want to hear. Just tell us the things that make us feel good about ourselves. We don't need truth, and we certainly don't need the truth of God. Just tell us the things that we want to hear. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if you're like me. I, in a lot of ways, I hope you're not. <laughs> but I think here probably you are. That you know, as I as I see all the political landscape of our country, I just wish there'd be somebody that would just tell the truth. You know. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, or some other. Uh, you know, it, just tell the truth. You know, anytime you need a fact checker after a speech that you and a dozen of other people have helped to prepare and you still got to get the facts checked, that, there's something wrong with that. You know? And it's not about a political party. It is about a spiritual issue within our country that we have a lot of people, and many of us, if we're not careful, like to be the same way where we say whatever it takes to get us what we want. God doesn't like that. He's going to give commentary on where this would lead them. And so pick up with me again, verse 11. Here's what the people of Judah were saying. Get out of the way, they say to the prophets. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Boy, that is a bold statement. We don't care what God says. Hey, these are the people of God. This is the people of Judah. <laughs> we don't care what God says. It says that they're plain as day. We want what's going to benefit us. And there are many areas in our culture today where that very thing happens. Issues of marriage, issues of right to life, issues of where life begins, issue after issue after issue of an ethical nature, moral nature, but at the end of the day, it's all spiritual. You cannot put the secular in one category and the spiritual in another, when you look at Scripture written in a political climate, written in the midst of a, of, a, uh, of, a, of a political atmosphere, truth of God is truth regardless of where it's applied. Truth doesn't apply one way here and another way there. It's all spiritual. And this is the issue God has with his people. In verse 11, they're telling the prophets, just get out of the way. Turn aside from us. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> I love verse 2. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. Yeah, you can tell God to go sit in a corner. We can do that as a nation, but it doesn't mean he's going to stay there, does it? God, we don't, want, we, don't, we don't really care what you have to say about where life begins. But God's not going to go away. 
God, we don't care what you say about the things that matter to us as individuals, matter to us as a country. We just want to surround ourselves with people that we want to hear from to the exclusion of truth. And so you just stay over there on your side. And whenever we have our, me- our meal and we want you to bless it, or whenever I lose my job and I need you to come help me, whenever we're having issues with our teenager and we want you to give us some wisdom, then we'll call you over. But until then, just stay over there. We don't need you. We won't, don't want to hear from you. The problem is God doesn't stay where we send him. So look at what he continues to say. Is this not a commentary of our country today? Verse 12, Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, Since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you. See, he calls this sin. When we put ourselves above God, when we listen to those that that make us feel good above what God's truth is, he calls that sin. So he says, verse 13, Therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, And like a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? How can you forget? When did the city of of New Orleans begin to feel the effects of that storm? When did the water begin to rise like they had never seen before? It wasn't whenever the winds began to increase. It wasn't as the rain began to pelt harder and harder. It was when the levees broke, was it not? And everyone knows that when the levees broke, everything changed at that point. God says as he speaks of the sin of his people, and the sin was not who they had elected in the office. The sin was that they had rejected him, rejected his truth, replaced it with something else. God says this iniquity, I'm just telling you, is like a breach about to fall. It's like a bulge in a high wall. You know what? If you're buying a new house and you're checking out the foundation of the house and you walk around the circumference of that house and if you see somewhere along that foundation line as you look down that line, if you see a bulge in that foundation, you can be buying that house. (laughs) It's like the crack from ceiling to floor. (laughs) 30 feet. No, no, you're not going to buy that. Why? Because it's reflective. It's indicative of there being a bigger problem beneath the surface. God looks at the sin of his people and he says to them that this sin, you are replacing me with something less. You are chasing after something other than myself. This is like a breach about to fall. It's like a bulge in a high wall. You drag that bicycle out of the garage, for example, right? And you haven't ridden it in about four or five years and you get your 10 speed or 20 speed or I don't know, maybe it's been a while, maybe it's a three speed and you drag it out of your garage and you look at the the wheels and you kind of eyeball them a little bit. Yeah, they look a little dry, but I'm sure it's good for a little five months mile ride eh, it's got a bulge on the side of the tire but i'm sure it'll be okay right you take that bike out and you get up about 25 miles an hour you're on a good downhill and wee and pow that tire blows out and you realize why you bought that helmet from walmart it's because the bulge in the tire showed you that something was wrong and you should have paid attention god says the sin of my people here and he's speaking to a nation of a spiritual issue wrapped in a political climate. He says, my people have rejected me and they have replaced me. And this is like a breach about to give way. And it's like a, uh, like a, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse will come in an instant. How, how extensive would it be? Verse 14 whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a a shirt will not even be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth. 
hard to scoop water from my sister. You ever seen a pottery jar? You break that thing with a, with a, with a hammer, you've still got some pretty good-sized pieces left, don't you? He says this is like a piece of a, 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 like a, a, a potter's jar that he's made, that he's fired, he's crafted, and it is smashed to su- such a degree you can't even find a piece big enough to scoop ashes out of the fireplace with it. And it's because of the sin of rejecting him and replacing him with something less. Let let me say this. There have been times in my life, and maybe for you, maybe even now, where though this is spoken to a group of people, a nation even, but for you as an individual, this same picture applies. That you've pushed God to such such a margin in your life You've marginalized him. You have isolated him. You've kicked him to the curb. Lord, I know you don't want me to do this, but I don't care what you think. This is my decision. Maybe for you, you've chased after something that God has never desired. You're on the very verge of experiencing the absolute devastation that comes when God is put to the fringes of our lives. And yet God is calling you back. (laughs) And he says, you're about to make a grease fire of your life. This is about to be, that the wheels are going to come off for you if you continue down this path. And he, as though through the prophet Isaiah himself, is beckoning you back into a close walk, close walk with himself again. Look at what it says down in verse 15. What's the remedy for this, whether for a person or a nation? It says, for thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, in repentance and rest you shall be saved, and in quietness And trust is your strength. Listen to this chilling phrase at the end of verse 15. But you were not willing. Wow. God calls. He warns his people first. And then he calls them home. What does the path home look like? It looks a lot like repentance. Of saying, Lord, I know that I've chased my own path and I'm ready now to walk on yours. That's repentance. Lord, I own up to my sin, I confess my sin. And now I turn away from my sin and I turn to you. The way that looks in salvation is that we turn to Christ and we surrender our lives to Jesus. The way that looks for a nation is that we turn our way, our, our, we turn ourselves away from our pursuits and we place ourselves on the path of seeking to honor God again. The way you get off of one path, the wrong one, is to repent and turn. And the way you get on the right path, the path with God, is to trust and rest. In repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. Look at verse 18. Well, how this reflects God's desire for his people. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And how blessed are all those who long for him. What is the, what is the application for us as we look at this passage of scripture this morning? What is the application for us in this day in which we find ourselves as a nation? The application is this, and I hope you'll jot it down. That our reliance upon the gospel... It identifies our hope in Christ, but also at the same time, it identifies our obligation to the truth. You know, for you as a believer in this world, it doesn't matter who gets elected or who doesn't. 
It doesn't matter what legislation gets passed or what doesn't. The stakes are high. Don't, don't misread what I'm saying. The stakes are extremely high. But our hope is not in a lawmaker or a law. Our hope is in Christ, the fulfillment of the law. You see, whenever the elections come, and that day dawns, and every pundit has said what they have to say, I'm assuming that the sun's going to rise the next day. God's still going to be seated firmly upon his throne, and Jesus Christ is still going to be Lord of this boy's life. (laughs) And so it doesn't matter, because I've got a host of testimony, a Bible-thick worth of people, who despite what they faced, and despite what adversity they find themselves in the midst of, still had hope in the midst of those challenges. And so we have to be real careful about, as a Christian community, about where our hope rests. Our hope rests in the person of Christ. It rests in the truth of the gospel message. None of that changes. But at the same time, it doesn't obligate us to just keep our head in the sand. No, we have a place to fill. We have a response to this world in which we live, and that response is that we are obligated to truth. Flip over with me, if you will, real quickly as we begin to close to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. It's the very last chapter of the book of Matthew, and I want you to notice this as we begin to close. Matthew, chapter 28. As Jesus here has already been crucified, he's already been uh, buried, he's already resurrected, Forty days later after his resurrection, he ascends up to heaven. Notice what he says. These are the last words of Christ. Matthew chapter 28. Many of you are familiar with this passage. The the last words that Jesus speaks. And notice what his marching orders are for those who know him. Matthew 28 verse 18 says, Jesus came up and he spoke to them, those that were assembled there, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That identifies for us what our task is. And our task primarily is not to proclaim any other message beyond the simple message of the gospel. For us as Christians, it's not even as important as who gets elected and what we vote for as to what it is that we are voting for. Does that make sense? And what we have to do is ask ourselves, I think there are some who are, who, who are, so, they, they are so out of balance in regards to how their faith plays out in the political aspect of our country that even if Jesus ran for the opposing party, they wouldn't vote for him. Does it make sense? I mean, even if Jesus himself, standing on everything that we have, that we know of him, everything that he said, written in Scripture, if he just ran for the opposing party, there's some who would not vote for him just because he carries a different tag than they do. And what we have to do is we have to understand that when we cast a vote, yes, we vote for a person. Yes, we vote on the issues. But the thing that we sift those people through and those issues through is the truth of God's word. And we don't need anybody to tell us who to vote for if we're knowledgeable of God's word and if we know his truth and we know the ones who come down closest to what he has already said for us. And yet we've become a nation of people. Christians, perhaps more than anyone. That it doesn't matter what the truth of God's word is. If this vote is going going to cost me in my pocket, then I'm not going to vote for it. If this vote is going to cramp me in my lifestyle, then I'm not going to vote for it. And we have to be willing to endure even sacrifice 
if truth requires it. It's that important. And so when you step into a voting booth, what does that mean? You've sifted the issues and the people through God's word. You look at where they stand. You look at what they'll do. And you identify who is going to line up most clearly with the truth that will never let us down. And when all is said and done, and the dust settles and the sun rises the next day, you know that God is in control. Because even the heart of the most powerful of kings is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He steers it wherever he wants. So where are we as a nation? I think we're right in the midst of Isaiah 30, to be honest. What does it take to come back? It means sifting every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our lives, through the truth of God's word, being willing to live it, proclaim it, stand on it, and trust God with the results. Where might you be this morning as an individual? You might be right in the midst of Isaiah chapter 30. <laughs> you might be at that place where you've pushed God to such a fringe in your life. Where you've made room for everything else except for Him. But today He calls you back to repentance. To trust your life to a Savior who stepped into this fallen world and lived above it without sin. To give His life just for Lord, we know your word is not a history book. But where it speaks of history, Lord, it's true. It's not a finance book. But where it speaks of finance, Lord, it's never wrong. Lord, it's not a political handbook. But where it speaks on political issues, Lord, it's always right. Your word is without error. And Lord, you did not create us to live life separating the different areas of who we are into different compartments where some areas you're allowed and other areas you're not. Lord, you died for all of us. And the decisions that we make, whether in the workplace, whether it be as families, whether it be with how we use our bodies, whether it be with who we vote for, have to all be... They all have to be sifted through the truth of your word. And so, Lord, may we be people of your word who hunger for it, who long for it as, as a deer pants for water. Lord, may we thirst for you and for your truth in that same manner. And Lord, may we be willing to stand on it no matter what we lose, no matter what we, what we draw to ourselves. May we just simply be people who stand on your word. We are salt and we are light in this world. And Lord, our message is clear. It's the message of the gospel. But Father, I pray that for every part of who we are, that it would be evident that you are in control there, that we are surrendered, that we are yielded. Lord, we face big issues as a nation, big decisions that get cast. And we know that leaders that are in leadership have a heavy influence on this country and where it goes. Lord, there'll be people that will be speaking in the days, months, even years to come about the abortion issue, about where life begins, despite the fact that your word makes it so clear that life begins at conception. Lord, that is a spiritual issue. Lord, there is no wiggle room. Your word, Psalm 139, makes it clear to us that, that you know our days even before one of them has yet come into being. That you are the one who forms and crafts us even before we are ever even born into this world. 
Lord, we face issues of marriage and how it's defined despite the fact that we just spent 10 weeks looking at it. Despite the fact that Genesis 1 and 2 already gives us the example and the, the protocol of what marriage looks like. You're the one who designed it. We don't have the freedoms to redefine what you've already defined so clearly. And Lord, there are issue after issue after issue that we face as a nation. And Lord, we as Christians are not called to change this world. We're just simply called to introduce this world to the Savior who changes. And so give us boldness. Give us conviction. And Lord, may we be willing, whether it's through a vote, whether it's through, through other steps of obedience that we take, to just simply live out our faith in a way that puts you on display. And so, Father, we thank you that we can trust you. Lord, I pray for those this morning, that for them, the, the temperature of our nation is not even on the radar. For them, their life is in need of a Savior. Lord, Isaiah 30 just captured right where they are. And they know that their life is about to just fall apart. It's as though there's a bulge in that high wall. There's, there's a, a breach in, that, in that, that wall that's about to give way. And Lord, they need, before things fall apart, they need rescue. And Lord, I pray that today that they find that when they own their sin, when they confess that sin to you, and when they, when they cast it upon Jesus, receiving him as Savior, as Lord, accepting his forgiveness and his payment for their sin. And so Lord, lead us to make the decisions we need today. Give us the courage to live out our faith in a way that, that honors you each day. And may the choices we make this morning lead us there. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's stand together this morning for our song of invitation. Nathan leads us. As God